You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators. Christina Baker-Klein is the author of five novels. Her most recent novel, Orphan Train, has spent more than two years on the New York Times bestseller list, including five weeks at number one, and has been published in 38 countries. Her new novel, A Piece of the World, based on the iconic painting, Christina's World, by Andrew Wyeth, will publish by William Morrow on February 21st. Later, he told me he'd been afraid to show me the painting. He thought I wouldn't like the way he portrayed me, dragging myself across the field, fingers clutching dirt, my legs twisted behind. The arid moonscape of wheatgrass and Timothy, that dilapidated house in the distance, looming up like a secret that won't stay hidden. Faraway windows, opaque and unreadable. Ruts in the spiky grass made by an invisible vehicle leading nowhere. Dishwater sky. People think the painting is a portrait, but it isn't. Not really. He wasn't even in the field. He conjured it from a room in the house, an entirely different angle. He removed rocks and trees and outbuildings. The scale of the barn is wrong. And I am not that frail young thing, but a middle-aged spinster. It's not my body, really, and maybe not even my head. He did get one thing right. Sometimes a sanctuary, sometimes a prison. That house on the hill has always been my home. So we're just going to have a conversation about you and your works. Great. Particularly about the book. And it's supposed to be relaxed and, you know, casual. So my very first question to you is that you have said that writing fiction based on real people is a daunting task. So why did you do it? Because I did not know how daunting it would be. (laughs) (laughs) And when you start a project, you're so excited that your excitement carries you for a while. And then all of a sudden you realize, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I know that sounds ridiculous, that my sixth novel would be my hardest. You would think it would get easier. But this challenge of writing about people who are still alive today Mm. as fictional characters, Mm -hmm. and especially with a family like the Wyeths, where uh, there's a lot at stake for them in their international reputation, it was daunting to say the least. And I interviewed a whole number of people who were family members on the the, the, sub, the side of the subject, Christina Olson, the, the woman in the painting, uh, Christina's World, and the Wyeth family. But I did not ever interview Betsy Wyeth, the widow of uh, Andrew, who is still alive, because I just, first of all, I didn't want to draw too much attention to myself and mm. second and I didn't want anyone sort of looking over my shoulder but but even more than that there's a lot written about her and about their relationship and I I felt that was enough I kind of didn't want to get any closer to that line of nonfiction. so let's back it up a little bit tell us the premise of the book and just give us the basic plot of of this 
of this book, A Piece of the World? Sometimes people tell you your plots, which is one of the wonderful things about getting reviewed or... I know, that I'm not going to do that. Interviewed. No, you but I was... It. I want to tell you what someone just told me that is not some, a way that I've ever thought about it, but it was interesting. She wrote that the book is the story of two romances, one a thwarted real love story and one a platonic love story yeah. between Andrew Wyeth and Christina Olsen. I, um, I think that's very accurate. It's a lovely way to say it. My one-sentence description is that A Piece of the World is the story of the relationship between the artist Andrew Wyeth and the subject of his best-known painting, Christina's World. And it's also the story of her um, emergence, um, her path toward becoming his muse. Mm-hmm. And her path to sort of accepting her life and her decisions around her life. Yes, because yes, you, you spent lot of, time in her past and 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 how she got to being in this house with her brother and really not have not have uh, broadened out beyond that. But there's so much there is what you help us understand. It's an awkward way of saying it, but you know, do you know what I mean? I do. I think of this book as a philosophical meditation on what it means to find value in your life because this woman led a life that was very small in some ways and she wanted a bigger life but was thwarted physically because she was disabled and became increasingly disabled and by her family and her situation. Yeah. She was really smart and she could have been a teacher and even more uh, than that. Yeah. She was a woman born in the early 20th century. She lived on a farm in a very remote area. So there were all these limitations. Her family needed her in a certain kind of way. Um, and because of her disability and because of her personality in some ways, she never found sort of the person, the soulmate that maybe she craved. And so what happened is that late in her life, this artist came along who opened the world up to her and gave her um, validation and a sense of herself that was bigger than the life she led. And I think that was a great gift for her. And there was just a, a mutual simpatico between the two of them because you got the sense that he felt understood in the same ways that she felt understood. So interesting for me researching this true life story, real life story. I mean, yes, it's a novel. It's her perspective. But what I found that I didn't expect to find is that they were really similar in yeah. some ways. So they were both incredibly smart but not schooled. His father had kept him out of school as well, um, had really raised him in his studio. His father, N.C. Yeah. Wyeth, was a famous painter and illustrator. And he didn't let Andrew really have a friends. Uh, you know, they, he, as I say, he didn't go to a local school. He didn't have that kind of experience. So, and he also had a physical disability he that did, yeah. kept that him, was, yeah. made him feel different from any, everyone else. Um, furthermore, he had very unconventional ideas about kind of what ways to live and what it meant to sort of have a home. And in a weird way, she shared those unconventional ideas. You know, she didn't have electricity long after people had electricity or and running water. She lived very close to the bone of things, and so did he. So they shared a kind of um, idea of the world that was quirky and unusual, and a lot of people didn't understand. Mm-hmm. 
even his wife. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you don't spend too much time on his marriage, but but you communicate it so efficiently. You you understand the sort of tug pull, you know, the push pull between the two of them and why it works and why he would find so much peace and solace, you know, going to this other house and and sitting silently in many in many cases with Christina, which I, I appreciate. And you also, I think, I really very much liked the way you depicted the friendship between the two women. So tell us a little bit more, because I, I I don't know how much of that, and I don't know if you, if you don't want to say I completely understand, how much of that is sort of based on fact and at how well did those two women know each other or not? You know, I don't actually mind talking about that because really the book is factual. I mean, it it's is, weird. Huh? It's a novel. Yeah, so, but yeah. really everything, all the weird things are true. Are true. Yeah. And one of my hardest tasks as a novelist was creating motivations for behaviors, for actions that I would not have chosen as a novelist to give yeah, my character. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I think, I'll pull back to your question in a second, but I think it was actually such an important learning experience for me because it taught me that my own um, impulse when I create plot is sometimes to reconcile things or to say, that doesn't make sense psychologically, Without pushing far enough, I think, to sort of give someone a really edgy um, or sort of counterintuitive, counterintuitive, unusual response, and then and then figure out a way to make it make sense. I think it's pushed me, and so for my next novel, I think I will have learned something about really um, pushing my characters to to do surprising things because people do, and I'll talk about some of those. And I'm happy to talk about some of those in a moment, those moments where I was like, I just would never have had her do this, and now I have to deal with it. But anyway, back to Betsy quickly. Yes, that's all based on truth. Betsy was this lovely, precocious, unusual girl, also had a physical disability as a child. So she, too, related to that in Christina. I mean, a lot of people did then, and there was a lot of illness that was undiagnosed. But... um, Betsy was nine years old, I think, when she knocked on the door. I mean, one of the recurring motifs in the book is this idea of the stranger at the door who holds a key to the rest of your life. And in Christina's case, because she really never left her home, it was always people coming to her. And many of them made a huge difference in her life. So Betsy knocked on the door, and she just marched in and started doing dishes. Essentially, she started helping this woman who was kind of strange and helpless in some ways. Um, She was very um, sort of uh, lovely as a child. And when she showed up with this boy, um, again, a knock at the door, Betsy showed up with Andy the day she met him. He showed up at her house. Her father was a painter. He was away, and Betsy brought him over. It was sort of a test to see how Mm. he would react to Christina. She wanted to see if he would be turned off or repulsed or disgusted or whatever it was. Christina was very, uh, as I say, singular. Um, He passed with flying colors because he found her fascinating. Um, But Betsy was this very strong-willed, intelligent woman who ended up running Andrew Wyeth's career. But they also butted heads a lot. And she, he found her um, conventional, meaning, as I say in the book, for example, she didn't want to live in the barn. <laughs> I mean, he was so he literally unconventional. Says, I, I don't understand why I can't. Yeah. Like, why can't she, we just live yeah, in the barn? He was like, "This makes no sense. We're in two stalls. There's plenty of room." Um, but so, so really, by 
by conventional standards, she was not at all conventional, but by his standards, you know, she was a little bit, she wanted something of a normal life. Um, but she also was um, very important because she pushed him hard to differentiate himself from his father, whom she saw as kind of a hack, actually, and she never got along with, which I think I convey in the book as well. Me too. Um, and to drain his palette of color, to, to, yeah. to be more stark. Um, and so his painting changed over time as a result of her influence and other influences. But she was lovely to Christina always and kind to her. Christina was very proud. Betsy was the only person she would let help yeah. her. yeah. And in fact, at one point, Betsy bought linoleum for their kitchen floor. And after Christina died, they found it rolled up in a corner. Oh. She was like, sure, I'll take it. And then she stuffed it away. <laughs> but, but, um, but she tried to help. She tried to help. So tell me a few of those instances where real life led you to a, a plot turn where that you hadn't expected and that you would never have drawn up yourself. There were quite a few of them. So the earliest one in the book is that... Um, Christina was very young when her father took her to see an expert, they thought, doctor in Rockland, which was kind of a big trip for them in a horse-drawn yep. carriage in the winter. And uh, they got there, and she just threw a tantrum, and he ended up coming back without doing it, which was kind of shocking when you think about a little girl. And, and especially this, this father. This is a no-nonsense strong-willed father. Yeah. Right. It's How does that make sense? So actually, my editor, Catherine Ninzel, was so helpful. I had written the scene and then it was, it kind of happened too abruptly. I needed to show time passing. Mm. Um, so I devised uh, a moment or an hour, I guess, where she goes and hides in an alley and the father's looking for her and to give it enough beats to yeah. make sense. Yeah. It's hard to make that make sense. Right. Another um, important one is that um, anecdotally, her, her, best friend, uh, the girl she'd known from childhood, came over. Christina had just had this terrible experience where her she was sort of rejected. Um, the, the man she was in love with who said he was in love with her, she finds out is engaged to someone else. It's terrible. He doesn't ever explain, and he just yeah. drops out of her Ghosts life. Ghosts her. And yeah, it's terrible. And her boyfriend, her boyfriend, her brother then gets married. Her younger brother has his wife is pregnant. They're in the house, um, and the wife goes into labor. And Christina's supposed best friend from childhood is over, comes over to help, and says, "Christina, you need to stop um, sulking and pull yourself together and make breakfast for everyone." Christina's stomping around. And she says, don't you dare tell me what to do. And the best friend says, I'm your best friend. I'm going to tell you what I think. And Christina says, if you never, if you say that again, I'll never speak to you again. And she never speaks to this woman again. And they live in this teeny town of Cushing, Maine. And I thought, how in the world do you make that make sense? Um, so I built in, and, and I changed the name of the friend because I don't want to insult anyone who's still alive. And I don't have any basis for this. But I built in that this friend was sort of um, condescending. Mm. And she was sort of... Um, uh, not all that nice a person. Yeah. So in the end. Yeah, yeah, so to make it make sense, because it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. And the fact that you could... it, What it speaks to is Christina's repression, I think, um, in real life, and her 
stubbornness. She was really oh, yeah. stubborn. She and was. I tried to convey that she was so stubborn in the book at the same time that I tried to give her some motivations for behaving like that. Mm-hmm. And then there are plenty of others, but those are two yeah, those are, that's big ones. so, so interesting. Yeah. So you do, you have gone back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, and in this book, sort of a, a combination. Do you prefer one to the other? Do you like the ability to move between the two? No, I really like non. I mean, I really like fiction. fiction. Yeah, I feel like at this point, I'm just a novelist, yeah. and if I'm lucky, maybe a story writer as well. But and but in fact, I'm not uh, that good at writing stories. I like a bigger canvas. I mean, canvas. I think the the thing I realized about myself very early is that I I I am able and I like having a whole story kind of stretching ahead of me and envisioning an end. It's not that I necessarily know how the story plays out completely, but I've always thought that way. I've always had that ability. And I I was teaching at Fordham, and uh, I went to an event one evening that I had hosted for bringing a writer, a novelist, onto campus. And I rode home to Montclair, where I live, with a professor, a journalism professor. And she said, um, you know, I just honestly don't understand the impulse to make things up, and then why would you want to do that? And why would anyone want to read it? She said, "Really? She said, I even just don't read even." It. Yeah, she said, "I don't really get fiction." And in that moment, I understood. Yeah, it is weird. Like I, it's true. Like not everybody wants to write or read fiction, and that I've always sort of thought I was just like everyone else. That's but I so think it is unusual. The impulse to do it is not the same as the impulse to write nonfiction or to yeah. write journal to be a journalist. Of course, it's a different thing. I always have a variant on that question, which is I'm very, I'm genuinely curious each time I sit down with a novelist why you would want to do something so hard. It's 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 my very first question. I think every I think every novel is such a quote you know daunting task. I'm so in awe that people want to beat their head against that particular wall. Um, just knowing how hard it is. It's like a very protracted childbirth, and it's also that way. I have three children, in that you are like, oh, it wasn't so bad when you did. Like, I can forget again. Every time. Um, But it's terrible, especially this book. It was so hard, as my editor knows. Um, It was so hard for me. I felt like I did not know how to put a noun and a verb in the same sentence. Isn't that interesting? It was crazy. Um, And I just had to plow through and, you had and to then suspend revise and you revise just had to say to yourself. The reason that I do it over and over again is that there are two moments that are magical. One is creating the having a story in your head all the time is the most fun and exciting way to live. It's transcendent. You're t- trying to tap into something elemental about being human when you write novels, I believe. And you live in a state of inquiry with the world that is so profound, whether it shows up on the page or right, not. Right, 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 but at least you're in your head. Yeah, yeah, wrestling yeah. with Got this, it. these sort of enormous questions. And what a privilege to live that way, to think that way, to be inspired by great writing and artists all the time. That's what it's like to be in the process of creation. That's the good part. And the research and studying different worlds and lands and 
people and philosophies and ways of being is such a joy. That's amazing. And then on the other end, I think having created something that you're proud of, that you feel expresses in some small way what you were trying to get at. I mean, because you can never do exactly what's in your head. It's too profound and exciting. And it's hard to pull off, and you always fail on a thousand levels. But um, but when you, through, uh, for me, it's like chipping at a rock and ending up with a sculpture. When you end up with that sculpture, it feels like a great accomplishment because the inside of one's brain is so full and so muddled and so muddied that it's sometimes when you're doing it hard to imagine that you'll ever end up with that final um you know work of art work on of whatever art. level work of on art. whatever level and and again I'm stressing the process and not the end result because I'm not I don't want to say that I'm not trying to say that it's it's everything that I dreamed it would be but I you know you just keep working at it talk to us about the use of this painting, Christina's World, in other mediums. There, you, you, through your research, I mean, maybe a lot of people know this, but I was surprised to... to um, did you see my slideshow? I did. I was surprised to learn and to see examples of how many times this painting has been almost, you know, exactly replicate, replicated in, in other, in other um, works of fiction and, and, and storytelling. Well... If this goes out to anyone who's in an area where I might be coming to talk, I have a slideshow where I actually chart, show all these different ways that the painting's been used and as part of popular culture. I was just in Australia, and everyone there knew the painting, which I thought was so interesting, the people I spoke with. Um, There are people I've met who don't know it. I mean, it's not the most universally known painting, but it's on a par with American Gothic by Grant Wood and Whistler's Mother by James Whistler in terms of being a kind of iconic American painting that people do parody and think about and use in all of these ways. Most recently, I'll give you just two examples. That's a good one. Um, (laughs) The New York Post did a cartoon of Hillary in the grass, like questing toward the White House. Um, And then another one, that was very recent is that Westworld was in part inspired by this painting, Christina's World, and the director um, of early episodes and some of the writers used it as an iconography and its uh, inspiration because um, because there is this universal, I think it taps into a universal um, sort of yearning and whether it's for uh, a rural America or it's for some sort of larger thing. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I talk about when I do the slideshow. Well, thank you for answering that question because that was a beautiful way to say it. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to read the results of, of that effort and, and all of that creative thinking. And thank you for the time spent talking about it. it was, it's been real a real pleasure. That's great. Thank you. And congratulations on the book. It's so good. Thank you so much. I'm glad. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.